This is Tom Lee, Editor-in-Chief for NEJM Catalyst, and we're talking today with Ron Williams, who I think is known to many of you uh, from the years that he was the CEO of Aetna. Uh, he's had a lot of other interesting roles in his career. Uh, I think it's the reason we're talking today is uh, Ron is, uh, you know, you know, one of the role models for uh, a minority leader in healthcare. He's one of the relatively small number African American uh, CEOs of major organizations in healthcare. And he was in a meeting recently with a small group that I attended, and he made some really interesting, I think, important comments about the nature of diversity and healthcare leadership. There are a lot of topics we could talk with him about. Uh, but this is the one we want to focus on today because I wanted to share some of the insights with our broader audience and explore them more deeply. But first, Ron, uh, can you give our audience a, a very quick summary of your career, uh, just some of the, the stops along the way so they have a sense of uh, you and your story? Well, uh, thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to uh, be here. I think like many people, I grew up in a family where the dinner table talk was about the passengers on the bus my father was driving, stories about what happened in the uh, barbershop where my mother was a manicurist. There was no exposure to business, business careers, or significant kinds of roles in society. Um, I was very fortunate in the sense that I've, I focused a lot on education. It was a big emphasis in the family. Ultimately, I went to uh, uh, community college for two years, then on to a, a college in Chicago called Roosevelt, where I went to school full-time in the evenings, worked full-time in the day, found my way into government, uh, where I worked for a while, and then decided that I really wanted a business career. Uh, ended up uh, actually working for a company called Control Data uh, for a number of years, then went on to uh, get my master's at MIT. Uh, with, at getting a master's of science in management, and then got bitten by the entrepreneurial bug and jo met two friends who uh, were knowledgeable about healthcare and, and moved to California and started a healthcare company. I knew nothing about health at the time. They did. And we built that into uh, a nine-center outpatient treatment for behavioral health. And we ultimately sold that, and then I joined Blue Cross Blue Shield of Blue Cross of California, which became WellPoint, which became Anthem. After 14 years there as, as president uh, of the California business, I was recruited into Aetna uh, initially, um, in head of operations, became president uh, shortly after arriving, and then ultimately chairman and CEO. After leaving Aetna, I've moved into corporate board work. I serve on the board of Johnson and Johnson the Board of American Express, and the Board of Boeing. And I've been very active in private equity and healthcare, which has been a very exciting space. So, Tom, that's kind of the thumbnail sketch there. Well, it's a great story, but uh, I want to focus on um, uh, this conversation which you and I had in, in that other meeting where uh, I made the observation that when you look at the C-suites of healthcare organizations, they don't look like the population of patients we serve demographically, and they don't look like our clinicians. They don't look like doctors uh, in terms of their race and gender and ethnicity backgrounds. Uh, they don't look like nurses or other personnel. They, in fact, look like the C-suites of virtually every other type of business 
in the United States. They're mostly white and mostly male. Now, these are people who believe in diversity. I, I think they, I take them at their word when they say that, but what's going on? Uh, what, what's your explanation for why the leadership of U.S. healthcare is, you know, mainly white males and, um, and every minority is an underrepresented minority in the C-suites? Well, Tom, I have a, a, a statement I often say, which is assume positive intent. And I assume that, that the leadership of these organizations has good intentions. They don't understand that their actions result in consequences that result in the organizations not being reflective of both the, the patients they serve as well as the clinical community. And I think it's a failure of both the trustees or the boards and a failure of the CEOs to really treat this as a serious, important issue. If the leaders of these organizations had the kind of results in whether it was fundraising and generating revenue and generating a surplus or a profit, depending on their structure, most of them would be unemployed. However, boards continuously accept underperformance and making the organization from top to bottom reflective of these broader constituencies and societies. One question I often ask is, at your current pace, what year would you be reflective of the broader society, and what are you doing to shorten that interval? I rarely get an actual answer to that question because I often think it must start with a 40 or a 50, meaning they would achieve it in 2040 or 2050. And so if organizations aren't very purposeful in addressing the issue, they're not going to make meaningful progress and success. Well, what is, what's the performance implication of having a non-diverse leadership team? Uh, I mean, if all the people on the leadership team are basically, you know, good people who are inclusive, um, how does that hurt the organization if your, team, if your leadership team's not diverse? I think it hurts the organization simply because you are missing important points of view around the table. If you're implementing programs that relate to women, for example, and women aren't in the room as part of that decision-making process and aren't, their voice isn't heard, you are not going to develop highly competitive and effective programs and initiatives. The same thing can be said for different communities that are part of the area in which you operate. Fundamentally, it is about improving business performance and improving results of the business by understanding the needs of those communities and how to configure very important initiatives that the organization is pursuing in good faith, but simply isn't figuring out how to configure them in a way that optimizes the intended result. So it's really about the business and the business performance and results. And by business, I mean the clinical outcomes that they're attempting to achieve. No, that rings true to me because I know I think all of us individually have blind spots and you want to put together a team that collectively has fewer or no important blind spots. But is the problem that we have too narrow an idea of what leadership looks like? Well, I think that's that's often true. We define the leadership attributes and skills and competencies necessary to do a job from a historical perspective. 
meaning the last person who had the job or the one before that. And we don't necessarily think about it in the future context. And uh, I'll give you an example I often use. There was a time in the U.S. when in order to be a police officer in most communities, you had to be six feet tall. People were convinced that that was an essential attribute of being a, a good policeman. When the research was done and they figured out that it had absolutely no relationship to being an effective uh, officer, and all of a sudden the competition was opened up to women, to people who are just are physically smaller in, in stature, then you got a much broader candidate pool. And from that, they selected the best candidates based on what they knew to be the real competencies necessary to do the job and you ended up with a much more diverse population. And this can be said for many, many positions in society where the definition of leadership is someone from central casting who looks like the last person. And uh, something you and I talked about, Tom, was the importance of organizations that are in trouble because what happens when organizations are significantly challenged, the, the kind of central casting candidate who is running the slightly smaller hospital or the slightly smaller medical group, where this would be a very interesting career progression to go to a bigger, more prestigious organization. When that larger organization is in trouble, that candidate doesn't want to go anywhere near it. Therefore, the organizations begin to look and broaden the aperture and broaden the lens to people who are looking for significant opportunities. Well, I repeated that observation that you made in, in multiple conversations I had in the days afterwards. And one woman CEO whose first CEO job was going to a city hospital that had eight days cash on hand, uh, she said you were completely right and there was no way uh, a white male executive was going to take that job. It was It was her opening. So if I interpreted you right, you're suggesting that if you or I were young um, or female or a member of minority group, uh, you know, and we would probably want to increase the chances our strengths would be fully appreciated by seeking out an organization under duress rather than staying in a safe, prestigious, very stable place. Is that is that the way you the way you would give give advice to a younger person today? Yeah, I, I really would. You know, I believe that often the greatest risk people take in their careers is not taking a risk um, because you can always go back to what you were doing before. You've demonstrated your ability to do that. In these high risk situations, organizations are much more open to non-traditional candidates. You could be from Mars. If they think you can help them fix the problem, you're hired. And I think it also gives these candidates a much broader scope. You learn more, the problems are bigger, it's not incremental, and you get an opportunity to really demonstrate the kind of impact you can have on culture, on financial performance, on understanding key constituency. I think they make great platforms for aspiring leaders who really wanna demonstrate what they can do and are, and are blocked from those opportunities by organizations trapped in the central casting model where they simply want somebody who comes from a successful, slightly smaller organization, as opposed to looking at the talent needed for tomorrow. Well, that's a really important 
piece of advice, and I thought that uh, it was a great insight. Now, another insight that I took away from our previous discussion was advice you have for CEOs, because you commented on how when you were CEO, you tried to build diversity by enlarging the pool of candidates being considered. Um, How did you go about that? Well, I think the first thing the CEO has to do is they have to take personal control of the talent management process in the company. You know, an example I use is that in large organizations, often um, the talent management process is built on historical relationships. And if you are a person of color or a woman, you weren't there 20 years ago or 25 years ago. You don't have those historic relationships. And those relationships often override what the organization needs in terms of skills and competencies for the future. You know, one of the things I say is that large organizations are built to do yesterday's work. They're not built to do tomorrow's work. As a CEO, what you have to do is make talent the first agenda item on your executive or leadership committee meeting. You have to make certain that in every position that is open, that there is a broad candidate slate that includes individuals from these non-traditional backgrounds and experiences and represent diversity in the broadest sense, and that your succession planning processes in the company are developing people by making certain they're getting the specific experiences and what I call real promotions. Real promotions are promotions where there can be two outcomes. It's a stretch assignment. The person can succeed or not succeed. And the other thing in that talent process is the CEO can bring discipline to to the assessment of the candidates. I can't tell you the number of times I've been in a meeting, whether it was a succession, a discussion, and I was saying, how come Mary Jones isn't on the list? She seems like she's had really good performance. Someone would say, well, you know, I heard she's not a team player. And I would push back and say, tell me how much time have you spent with her? What is that assessment made based on? And the answer I would get back is someone in my organization was on a project that she was on and they said, and people haven't really done a firsthand assessment of the talent. And so making certain that that the CEO is really controlling the talent process. The other point I would make is particularly people who've been in the organization five or six years are highly frustrated because they apply for positions and they don't get the positions. They think they're qualified for them and they never get a plain English answer as to what skill or competency they needed to have or demonstrate. Often when you dig into it, you find there was never really an opening. A job was posted, the deal was cut, based on historic relationships, and there was, and the posting was simply a process that the organization required. I stopped all deals. There were no deals. If a position was posted, it was a real post, and anybody who violated that was in big trouble. I think the other thing I would stress is the CEO has to model that behavior. I always had someone who worked for me in my office we called it a chief of staff. People call it something different. Uh, the first one I had was a very high-performing uh, executive who had been a general manager. 
He worked for me for a couple of years. He learned how you ran a large company by sitting side by side. He happened to be an African-American male. The next one was a woman. Uh, she uh, worked for me for a couple of years. So I demonstrated by the people who worked for me, who I mentored, who I developed, and who sat around that executive leadership table for two years, and then went back into the organization to demonstrate their own ability and what they could do, that I believed in developing diverse talent. One of the things I'm proudest of is I have five people who work for me who are now CEOs of major organizations, many of them women, most of them women, actually. Well, that brings me to the, the third and last set of comments you made that day, uh, which were about how the CEO has to show they are authentic about their values, including diversity. And my guess is that authenticity is something more crisp in your mind than it is for most of us. It's sort of a soft uh, you know, abstraction, but it sounds like it's, you've got a pretty operational idea of what it means to be authentic. Very much so. I think the first thing I would start with is the CEO must consciously pick a leadership style that they believe in and that they are committed to demonstrating and articulating. The minute your behavior is different than your words, it's all over. And so you really have to uh, make a conscious choice. If you say that you are a values-based organization and you do not start every opportunity to speak to employees, to speak to customers, to speak to clients, to speak to the board with the values of that organization, then the values are implicitly unimportant. And your own behavior in meetings, in, in events, have to be extremely consistent with that authentic behavior. You know, one of the questions I often get when I talk to groups is about this importance of culture. Culture are the curbs that keep the, the, the company safe on the road that it's traveling. The stronger the culture, the higher the curbs, the safer the organization. Now, I then get a question about what is culture. And people say, well, here's our culture. Here's how we describe it. And I explain, no, that's not your culture. That's what you want your culture to be. Your culture is what a new employee experiences after they've been to orientation. They've seen the video. They've heard you speak. And they go to lunch when we met with one of their buddies who is their peer orientation aide. And they lean over the table and they say, now tell me how it really works around here. What that employee says is the culture of the organization. Your job through the authentic communication, consistency and repetition and demonstrated behavior is to align with that employee experiences and articulates as the culture with what you want the culture to be as a leader of the organization. Well, Ron, th those are wonderful pieces of advice and I can't wait to get them out there to our audience and I hope that uh, we'll be able to work together more on bringing some of your insights to uh, the rest of healthcare as often as we can in the future. So thank you so very much. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Stay safe.